Our reading from the Old Testament this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18 through 24. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place, then he took the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, and he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. In translating the Hebrew here as comparable, the New King James is taking kind of the, the middle road of its meaning. What you see here is uh, Adam is alone. He doesn't have anybody else with him like him. All the creatures that God has created have been made out of the dust of the earth. And Adam was made out of the dust of the earth, and Adam was given oversight of them. He gives them names because he is over them. But even though they were taken from the dust of the earth like Adam was, Adam needed somebody to be comparable to him. Now, the Hebrew means comparable. It's a, it's a contrast but it also means someone who is complimentary to him. And that doesn't mean that they follow them around to give them compliments. It means that what Adam isn't, they are uh, a completer effectively, someone to complete him. And if you are completing someone, you are not living in hostility or uh, conflict with them you are living in peace and moving together as one machine. We are going to, in the sermon proper, look at what the term helpmeet means, at least briefly. But for now, I am foregoing that term, which is usually central to a message from this passage, and looking at the idea of uh, comparable or complementary. We are... In the 21st century, in the middle of Western culture, and Western culture has been uh, perreated by the thinking of Marx and Engels for roughly 200 years. That thinking says that all types and conditions of men are in competition with one another. Are you white? you are in competition with someone who is black. Are you rich? You're in competition with someone who is poor. 
are you female, you are in competition with males. The very essence of, of Marxist thought is this idea of contention and uh, competition. All types and conditions of men really are pulling at one another, pulling one another down so that they can rise up. Well, in the beginning of creation, that's the total opposite of what God wants in his creation. You have the animals, and they are brought before Adam to be named. He is going to be over them, but not in competition with them. There is going to be order. There is going to be peace because of true order. And when woman is created, the Hebrew word means a completion, a helping, um, and a working together. The word does not in any way allow for the idea of conflict or uh, competition. Uh, it's just not there. There is no place in scripture where God says, now the order I created where men and women live comparable to one another, live completing one another, uh, I don't want that anymore. Well, what I want is I want the sexes to be in conflict and, and to, to fight one another. There's no place where God ever says that. Rather, in the created order, women have a place in the order, man has a place in the order, and mankind lives at peace with one another. Marxism is literally the exact opposite of the Christian view of how men should live. And it begins here, in creation before the fall. But our New Testament passage this morning, which will be the basis for the sermon, is drawn from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for, for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. Marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. I've always kind of wanted to do that, and this seems like the most appropriate place. <laughs> and in fact, our sermon today does bring us together around the concept of Christian marriage, so uh, the impressive clergyman was not wrong. We are going to look at marriage, that blessed arrangement that, uh, I'll stop now. <laughs> Um, what do we find in this most reviled passage of the New Testament? Because it is, in fact, by the world, probably the most reviled passage. Now, it has a competitor or two. First uh, Timothy 2 comes to mind. But really, uh, for worldlings, this is the passage that they hate the most at this moment. And for reasons I have already given you, the philosophy of Western culture makes all types and conditions of men to be in competition. And this passage clearly does not show competition between husbands and wives at all. It shows a particular order and that order can be called rightly, because it is a good term, patriarchy. The, the world absolutely hates patriarchy. There is nothing more that it despises. And the very first part of this passage cannot be mistaken for teaching anything else but. Here again, the first couple of verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, not to everyone's husband, but to your own husband, but you are to submit to your husband, and you are to do it as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, a cynical wag did point out that that last verse, verse 24, is being accomplished by us with spades. As the church submits to Christ today, which it really doesn't, so wives are tending to submit to their husbands, which they really don't. So mission accomplished, the church is generally in rebellion to Christ, and women are generally in rebellion to their husbands. But that is not how this passage is rightly to be taken. The apostle presents an order. There is God above, and God is over everyone. God is over the husband. The husband is over the wife. And there is an order of authority, a chain of command, it runs through the fathers. God is the father. The husband is the man and ultimately the father. It is patriarchal. It is government by father. It is orderly and it is presented very clearly. And the world reviles this passage like a vampire reviles a cross. They, they act like sunlight has poured down upon them, and 
they flee for the shadows. They hate it. They shout, this is patriarchy, and this is bad. This is evil. Haven't you heard everything we've told you in school? Haven't you heard everything we have told you in a college classroom? Patriarchy is bad. Well, the only problem with that interpretation is God says patriarchy is his order. And so when the world shouts patriarchy is bad, it is evil, it gets in the way of women competing with their husbands because we are all in competition, uh, there's really nothing for the Christian to say back to them, but the only problem with your position is it's absolutely wrong. The Lord God has spoken, and when you declare this evil, you are literally uh, telling God he got it wrong. And that cannot really be what is. Now, we will not spend that much time upon the world's interpretation of this passage. They are, after all, outside of grace and outside of Christ. And so you've got people talking into the church, telling us what we are to believe concerning what God has said. And they are described in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, what we used to be, they are. We read, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So these are worldlings who are still that way. They are outside the commonwealth of Israel. They are strangers to God. They are strangers to the covenant. They do not have Jesus Christ. They are without hope. They are without God. And they are out in the world. So they don't really have any voice to talk to us. But I do present their point of view <clears throat> because the outline of my sermon is basically going to be through emphases that various groups of people bring to this passage. And a number of these emphases are basically talking to the world. The world has said patriarchy bad. God is wrong. No government by father. Patriarchy bad. And these perspectives try to answer that. They try to say, no, 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 uh, that, that's, you've got it wrong. Um, either patriarchy is not bad, and we'll explain how that is, or you've interpreted it wrong. We don't actually believe in patriarchy either. You've read the scripture wrong, even though it's clearly what it's saying, uh, and here's our perspective. So to understand the various perspectives, you kind of have to know the world's perspective because they're talking to it. What do various groups bring to this text if they're going to preach it? Well, let us start with the liberal church. Now, the liberal church is spiritually no different than the worldlings. They are unconverted people, and they don't have the spirit. They are the people who divide the church. 
But nevertheless, they are within the visible church, and they own a lot of pulpits. And when this passage is preached from their pulpit, which is almost never, but when it is, the emphasis they bring to it is that Paul is just clarifying what he has already said in verse 21. In verse 21, Paul has come to the end of a uh, didactic section of the scripture where he is teaching what Christian morality ought to be. And he says, all of you are to submit to one another in the fear of God. Now, uh, we looked at that just a little bit last Lord's Day. And what that means is submitting to one another in the fear of God. You have God as the authority. But we are all in covenant around the feet of Jesus Christ, and the, the, the ground around the feet of Christ is level. We are all in the same covenant. We have made this covenant through Jesus Christ, and there's a reason why we assemble together as a family. There's a reason why we know one another in the covenantal way we do. Uh, a lot of it has to do with God sanctifies us through our brother. When I am walking not in accord with Christ, when darkness has blinded me partially and I do not see my sin, which happens a lot, then another Christian brother comes alongside of me and says, thus says the Lord. And when that is done, and when that is true, when that Christian brother or sister, because we are all in the covenant, when they speak the word of God into my life, um, I am to submit to what they're saying, not because of their authority, but because of the fear of the Lord. They have brought to me the truth. They have brought to me what will be healing to my soul. doesn't really matter who they are, white or red or black or male or female. If they bring into my life a thus saith the Lord, if they speak to me the word of God in truth, Honestly, the Christian disciple is to submit, and it doesn't matter who does that. Well, the liberal says, you'll notice that the very next verse contains the word submission, just like that one does. And it says, wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, and that's going to become important in a second. And they say, Paul is just kind of clarifying. He's, he's uh, telling wives who are part of the covenant of Christ, we're all at, at the feet of Christ, uh, wives, this means you even have to submit to your own husbands when they speak of thus saith the Lord to you. That, that's all it means, they would say, that's the totality of it. Uh, wives might tend to be a little rebellious to their husbands because they know them too well. So Paul is just kind of emphasizing. Well, is there any truth here? Just a smidgen, really not enough to count, but there is just a little. It is true that it's pretty obvious when Paul comes to the end of verse 21 and he's used the word submission, he uses that as a springboard to now talk about another form of submission. It is what the Spirit has used to trigger his thought. But in verse 21, all of us are to submit to one another and in verse 22, wives, you are to submit to your own husbands, which is kind of exclusive language. 
unlike in a number of uh, really offbeat Christian sects that say, okay, every woman in this group needs to submit to every man in this group because, you know, well, that's not actually what Paul said. He said, wives, submit to your own husbands. So now he is talking to a specific relationship. And more than that, he is talking to a covenant where he has been talking to a covenant before, but it's not the same covenant. As I mentioned about worldlings, they are without Christ. And again, listen to what Paul says about the Gentiles when they were outside of Christ. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when, when Paul begins his ethical teaching there in chapter 2, he roots it all in the concept of covenant. You used to be outside of it. Israel was the visible manifestation of the covenant. You weren't in it. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise. And being outside the covenants of promise, you didn't have God. So th this is very covenantal rootage. And when he moves to the end of this segment, uh, beginning in verse 19 of the same chapter, he roots our hope, our joy, our deliverance again in covenantal language. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You were strangers and foreigners. Now you are known. Now you are citizens. Now you are but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. That's also covenantal language. You used to not be citizens. Now you're citizens. You used to be strangers outside of the covenant. Now you are known by God in the covenant. So really everything that Paul has said to us ethically is how you are to live in the covenant of Christ. <clears throat> the covenant of Christ is with all of us, men, women, everybody. But marriage is also a covenant. If you go back to, uh, for our purposes, we shall go to Malachi, uh, the prophet writes to God's people in chapter 2, and we read this about marriage. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So there's our word again. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? 
and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now, having read that passage, I cannot but comment, and I'm stepping away from the flow of my, my argument. I cannot but comment on how the, the New King James translates this. There's a certain little section in this passage that's notoriously hard to translate, but the New King James gets it right, in my opinion. Um, but did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? And you'll notice that the Spirit is capitalized, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. God is saying what really everybody who observes marriage knows if the Holy Spirit is not somehow involved in the marriage, it's going to be like taking two cats and tying their tails together and throwing them over a clothesline. Because man and wife, without the Spirit of God, are nothing but fallen creatures. And I assure you, if you married an unbeliever, and you were given by God to see the unbeliever as God sees them, you would recoil in horror and flee. There would be absolutely nothing to attract you there. And if somebody had married you while an unbeliever, same deal. And generally what happens when the spirit is devoid from a marriage is they end up hating one another intensely, whether they stay together or not. And so the prophet emphasizes, you know, God has left the spirit here so that marriages can take place so that you don't kill one another. Uh, and that's kind of profound. But for our purpose, the major issue here is that the prophet clearly says marriage is a covenant. If marriage is a covenant, it can't be part of a covenant because it is a covenant. In Roman Catholicism, you have marriage made into a sacrament. And a sacrament is a sign and a seal of a covenant but marriage can't be a sacrament because it's its own covenant. It's its own relationship by promise. And Paul, when he makes the jump in these verses, he says, now I want you to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So now the wife is being addressed and she's not being told, now be submissive to everybody in the church if they bring a word of the Lord to you. She's being told, be submissive to your own husband. And the word submission itself is a covenantal term. Now, I realize I sound like a broken record, but the, the relationship we have with God is covenantal. He has made a promise to us in Jesus Christ. He has seen that promise through. We relate to him by believing the promise. Everything about Christianity is covenantal. And the word submission is covenantal. If you have a covenant between two equals, both of the people in the covenant will be called to be submissive to the facts of the covenant. But if you have a covenant between a lesser and a greater, uh, you will find the word submission in ancient texts. And it will be the lesser should submit to the greater. Because there is an order in these suzerain covenants, in these kingly covenants, the king is above and the citizen is below, 
but it is a covenant. It's a relation of promise. The king will keep his word, but you're the citizen and you will submit to the king. I think that J.B. Phillips got the essence of what that means in his paraphrase. This is how he translated verse 21 and 22. And fit in with each other because of your common reverence for Christ. You wives must learn to adapt yourselves to your husbands as you submit yourselves to the Lord. In a covenant between a greater and a lesser, who is going to do the changing? Will it be the greater? Will the king come and relate to a people that he is effectively conquering, but bringing into fellowship with himself? Will the king come and say, now, you're a very special group of people, and you obviously need me to shape myself to you. Human kings don't do that, and God our Father absolutely doesn't do that. He is the greater in the covenant, and though the covenant is amazingly gracious, the side that is going to be doing a lot of changing is you. When God called you to help himself in Christ, were there any changes that happened in your personality, outlook, or desires? I would bet there would be several. You did the submitting. You did the changing. You adapted yourself to the greater. Well, Paul is thinking covenantally. He's been talking about the covenant of the church, and now he is thinking about the covenant of man and wife, and in both cases, it is a covenant of the greater and the lesser. Historically speaking, ancient world speaking, biblical text speaking, that is what marriage is. The man takes his wife, and the wife lives in submission to her husband. So the, the liberal approach has about 3% correct, but that's it. How does the average evangelical emphasize this passage? Again, in, in the average evangelical church, you will not hear this passage preached much at all. But if you do, I'll guarantee you how you'll hear it preached. The minister will take the passage and he will emphasize... Um, he will emphasize verse 25 through 29. And they say this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So the evangelical will basically start there, and he will say, now this is a passage preached at husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. Husbands have a problem with that, being fallen creatures, and they are even to give themselves for their wife. This is daily in many little things, but it actually could be once in a big thing. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church. You should be willing to die for your wife. Um, he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present herself, her to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So the evangelical minister will get up behind the pulpit and the families will see this is what he's going to preach on. And the wives are going, he's going to preach on submission and I'm going to kill him. And the minister looks out at the congregation and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the safest part of this passage and I'm going to preach on it. And I'm not going to preach it wrongly because it is about husbands and husbands are told to love their wives, told to be willing to die for them. And then there's all that sanctification language, which I'm going to kind of sleep under the rug. Because if I preach that husbands should care about their wives' spiritual state, and they should be the teachers in their home, and they should instruct their wives in spiritual truth and care for them spiritually so that their wives are nurtured spiritually, that's going to suggest patriarchy again, and again, I may get fired. So I'm going to sweep that part under the rug, even though it's there. But what I'm going to preach, I'm essentially going to get right. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, be willing to die for them. Um, and I'm going to consider myself edgy. Because, you know, everybody else takes a different tact on it. But me, this is at you, husbands. Well, is there any truth here? Well, the answer is yes, uh, as I've already said. This is a passage that is directed at husbands. What is said is true, uh, but it leaves out two-thirds of the passage. I mean, just if you look at the flow of the words, I've preached on one-third of this passage, and I've done it for a purpose. It is safe and it's easy to preach at the husband, and I have missed Paul's emphasis on comparing and contrasting the husband and the wife, which is very clearly here, but I've not done that. So I'm guilty of preaching less than the truth. And that is not healthy and that is not good. Now, historically, and in fundamentalist churches, what emphasis would they bring? Well, the answer is fairly clear. They would start with the first verse of the passage. And they'd say, you know, the jumping off point that the apostle has is wives submit to your husbands. And he's not kidding. And it's actually what God wants you to do. And he would preach from there down through verse 24. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. You're going to do the changing. You're going to do the adapting. Um, your husband is primary. He needs you to help him. So wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Which is a very broad word. What does everything not include? Nothing. And so the, the typical sermon in this passage would get about three verses in, and it would be preached at the wife, and what was said would not be wrong. It is the will of God that wives submit to their husbands. It is the will of God that husbands be head of their wives. 
Thanks be to God for the lesson. Let's take the offering. Is that the true approach to this passage? Well, again, just like the former approach, the answer is yes. The minister has preached what is right concerning wives, but he has also left two-thirds of the text untouched. And he has not seen that Paul is comparing husband and wife. And what Paul is doing is he is comparing husband and wife in their likely weakness. Wives are likely not to submit to their husbands. I've been in ministry for over 30 years, and I'll guarantee you, most of the women in the churches I have pastored do not find submission an easy thing. They are totally willing to submit to their husbands as long as their husbands do what they tell them to. And that is clearly not submission. It's hard for a woman to submit. Uh, they're an equal human being. They don't really understand why they should submit to their husbands. They know their husband well enough to know that occasionally he makes very lunk-headed decisions. Why should I submit to him? That's a weakness. But then husbands love your wives, be willing to give yourself for them, and sanctify them, be like Christ, teach them and lift them up. That's not what men tend to do either. The truth is that men with their fallen nature uh, are given to a certain laziness, to be honest. I remember when we were uh, talking on this passage in a Bible study and I, I had a, a more semi-feministic woman in the Bible study and she said, you know, if, if men were really in charge, if they were really the head of everything, the world would be torn apart by war and, and, and we would all be dead. We would hit the apocalypse. And, and one Dutch farmer was listening and he kind of leaned up in his chair and he said, you know, that's absolutely not true. If men were absolutely in charge, nothing would happen because men would be inside watching TV and drinking a beer. And he wasn't wrong. There's a certain laziness that men are given to. Paul directs his teaching to them and says, you are to proactively love your wives. You are to be willing to die for them. And you are to be the spiritual minister of your house. Just as Christ ministers to the church, you are to minister to your children, but primarily wives here. You are to be the spiritual leader. And so Paul takes hold of the weakness of women, which is rebellion. He takes hold of the weakness of men, which is sloth, and he compares them, and he compares them in the light of Christ. And if I take the traditional approach, I have left out as much truth as the edgy evangelical who doesn't want to get fired. What is Paul's emphasis here? That is an interesting question, and when the sermon is preached, uh, it's rarely asked. But when you come to the scripture, you really need to ask, what did the original author really mean to tell you? And when you ask that question, you find that Paul has a number of emphases, and we have actually covered them effectively up to now. In using the term submission, he is emphasizing that marriage is a covenant. 
in using the the term uh, uh, submission, the original hearers would not have missed it. He also quotes directly from the Genesis passage that uh, we read at first, and there you see the beginning of the covenant, and wives are made helpmeets. A helpmeet is someone who is effectively a secretary to the guy in charge. They are an advisor to the guy in charge, so they're not just the people who take notes, but they are a helper to him. And so Paul emphasizes a covenant, and he emphasizes submission, and he emphasizes patriarchy. The apostle of Christ emphasizes all of this on purpose. So if you uh, try to hide it, if you try to scrape it under the rug, if you try to create a religion where you do not have a patriarchal order in the family and in the church, you have a different religion. And this is Paul's emphasis. Paul does emphasize that the wife is to be in submission. That is a major emphasis. Paul does emphasize the duties of the husband. That is a major emphasis. And one emphasis that rarely does get mentioned, though I have mentioned it already, is Paul has an emphasis to show that the example for the wife is the church and the example for the husband is Christ. And unlike the wag who said, you know, the church is in rebellion to Christ, so we're doing great, that's not how it's supposed to work. The church is supposed to be in submission to Christ. When the world looks at the church, they're supposed to be amazed at how obedient we are to our Lord because we love him. Wife, that's you. You, you are to take your pattern from that. Husband, Jesus did die for the church. He gave his entire life to teach and sanctify the church. Uh, he loves his church. Your pattern is Christ. There is, however, in the apostle, another emphasis here, and it is his major emphasis, and rarely is it touched on. It is the last couple verses, beginning at verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If you're reading the passage and you hit that verse, you immediately hit a, uh, a bump in the road and you go flying, because up till now, it certainly has sounded like Paul's talking about husbands and wives. And he says, well, yeah, kind of. I'm not really directly talking about that, although it does apply. That's what the last verse means. Now, everything I've said talks about husbands and wives secondarily, but I've not been trying to talk to you about husbands and wives per se. I've wanted to show you Christ in the church. That's my main goal. And in saying that, what he is saying is, while marriage has been given to all men and uh, God is gracious, sometimes even to the unbeliever, depending upon how you define that term. Um, you know, there are some unbelieving families where they don't scratch each other's eyes out. But they are kind of few and far between. Paul is saying to the Christian family, 
you are a picture of Christ and the church to the worldlings. This is actually an evangelism passage. You don't just evangelize by what you do. You, you have to tell them the gospel. You have to speak it to them. But evangelism includes what you do. And here Paul says, Christians, if you live marriage in the pattern that God has given, if the husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church, if the wife is submissive and adapts herself to her husband as the church is to do for Christ, the world will see a very picture of the saved estate. They will see grace. They will see God at work. They will see what it's supposed to be like. And they will see that there is hope in the world. I'm on my 30th year of marriage. And some of you are working up there too, you know. At Carmen's school, there are very, very few marriages with those kind of numbers. There are several divorces. One of her colleagues has never known anyone in her social circumstance who has ever been married more than four years. No one. She is a, a fairly nice person. I, I kind of like her. But she is totally a worldling. She knows nothing about Christ. And she goes through a series of meaningless Empty relationships with men that are meant to be disposal, disposable because she is afraid of marriage because she's seen two cats tied together by their tails and thrown over the clothesline. She is stunned. She is utterly amazed that two human beings can be married for three decades. We are literally to her a miracle she cannot describe. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Where the spirit is in the marriage, where the marriage testifies to the kingdom of God and the love of Christ, there you have at least part of the gospel being broadcast every day of your lives. Because in the world, most marriages are going to be between selfish people who can't get any higher than arrows. They can't get any higher than feeding off one another, and that's it. And God releases into the world these Christian married couples that live totally different than that. And it is a message of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And actually, that's kind of the stakes. When we live in the flesh and we don't live this pattern, when we let our selfishness uh, allow us to bite and chew on our spouse and children when we don't live with the church and Christ as our pattern. Not only are we deciding, you know, the most significant relationship of my life in the world, I'm going to make hellish. But more than that, we testify a lie concerning the gospel. Because the worldlings look at our marriages and go, ain't nothing different. And they ain't wrong when that happens. Now, uh, again, this is outside the flow of the sermon, uh, but it kind of needs to be mentioned. A, a number of worldlings point at verse 29 and go, this is clearly 
a contradiction in the scripture. Paul tells husbands, love your wives uh, as your own body. And when we get to 29, he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And they say, how does that verse fit when you have uh, a certain percentage of mankind that will take their own lives? Uh, suicide is a fairly known phenomenon. Uh, these people are destroying their own bodies. So how can Paul say no one's hated their own body? Well, Paul is right. You have to understand what suicide is doing. When someone is attempting suicide, they're attempting to escape, right? I mean, there, there's no one that I can picture saying, my life is so good and I am so blessed and it is a sunshiny day and the birds are, are chirping and I have not a care in the world. What I really want to do is blow my brains out. People who attempt suicide are attempting escape. And why would you escape? It's because you want to get you away, right? Well, doesn't that mean you are effectively looking out for your own interest? I mean, honestly, if you hated yourself, if you totally hated yourself, you would say, you know, my boss just fired me for a, for a frivolous reason. My wife walked out on me. My children hate me. Even the dog pees on me when I'm in bed. And I totally, totally deserve it. And that's the way it ought to work. But nobody does that because they love themselves. Even suicide is a form of self-love because you're seeking escape. 